Welcome back to the Deposit That Podcast, everybody. I'm here with uh, someone I'm honored to call my best friend. And as you know, we do intro songs and intro music. You're not going up to play baseball at bat, so I'm going to play the song that I have for you. So everyone can sit here and melt over and get chills. You know the song? It's a nice song. Toy Story. <laughs> not that kind of toy. This is like Toy Story. <laughs> You know, I think if you had any song to pick, that's got to be the song that kind of details our relationship since 2006. I think that was a really nice, yes, yeah. nice song. Did it touch your heart? <laughs> it was warm. <laughs> Good. I remember the first day I called you to like really talk deep was like uh, the summer of 2006. I think me and my girlfriend just broke up. She was like, she was definitely banging somebody else, right? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Probably, you know, whatever. It's which, like the unspoken well, truth. Well, which, which one? Girl? Which one? Yeah, exa- exactly. <laughs> but uh, I'd call you, I was sitting outside, and we talked for like an hour and a half, and we only known each other for about four or five months at that point, and we just like kind of talked it real and kept it real since then. But uh, yeah, I mean, you've been one of the most, you know, consistent, inspirational, motivational people in my life since the day we met back in 2006. And it's crazy to think that it's been 13 and a half years now that we've known each other. We've had some crazy times which we can't discuss over this podcast when we do release the xr version of this podcast we'll be able to share those funny stories but uh truly somebody that i'm grateful to have met and grateful to uh have access to on a daily basis yeah likewise you know it's it's interesting i get a ton of calls every day from people that i come across and you know i've met along the way in life and you know i seem to be that support person in life you know but definitely our friendship has, uh, has definitely blossomed and, you know, stood out as you know, one that attest, stand the test of time. So what do you believe makes you that person that people just want to reach out to, vent to, open up to and trust? You know, I think it's a combination of a, a number of things. But the first thing that, that pops in my head is, you know, life experience. And I think everybody has life experiences, but, you know, my experiences have been unique and I don't shy away from them. You know, I, I wear my experiences on my shoulders and I'm, I have no problem sharing, you know, the things I've been through because you never know who may be going through them in the future or, you know, who's gone through them in the past. And, you know, just having that soundboard of someone who has been through similar circumstances, I think people appreciate and people genuinely gravitate toward. So I think for me, it's being vulnerable, being open in you know, using my story and my experiences as a platform, you know, to help others get through their challenges. I know one thing we always said was like going deep sea diving. We'll not reference in what aspect <laughs> of life we like doing that. It's not fishing in that sense, deep sea diving. You know, I know your story, but since we're going to go deep sea diving right now, take us back to your childhood and what you've experienced. I know you've experienced a lot more than your average person, especially, you know, up until, you know, 18 years old, you went through a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I've, I've been through a ton. And, you know, and I think everybody in life has their own story. Everybody has experienced some type of hardships or setbacks. You know, for me, the challenges that I experienced early on, beside the fact that, you know, my father wasn't in my life and, until, you know, the later years when I, um, you know, got to college. My mother, single parent, you know, mother up until my early teenage years, you know, my family was on welfare, my mom was on welfare. I really, when I say I come from nothing, you know, I say that and, it's, and a lot of people use that as like, you know, some kind of, you know, cliche term, but I really feel like I came from nothing. As you know, when I was 15 years old, my first brother was murdered. And when I was 16, my second brother was murdered. Combination of seeing my mother struggle early on Growing up around, you know, women, I have an older sister and a younger sister who has a a mild case of cerebral palsy, you know, being around women all my life and my brother's passing away, I think it made me more of a wholesome person just by being more understanding, being more patient, you know, not jumping to conclusions, you know, being more rational. I think all of that really made me who I am today. Now, I know where you're from, obviously, but... Tell everybody where you're from, what setting you grew up in, along with other things that you experienced and saw early on that most people don't see early on. So I'm originally from Baltimore. I grew up in the inner city. In my life early on, you know, death, you know, murder, 
drugs, jail, those were the common themes. I, I go back to, you know, Fordham and, you know, I, I speak not only at Fordham, but also in Baltimore. I go back and I speak to inner city kids about what it took for me to get to where I am today. And I usually share with them, um, you know, for me growing up in Baltimore, we felt we only had three options. And those options were jails, drugs or the cemetery. And that was my reality. And that's the reality for a number of people who who I grew up with and who still live in the same community and neighborhood in Baltimore. So I was just blessed and fortunate enough to see the cracks in the road and avoid some of the potholes and make it to where I am now. But it was sad that a lot of people still live in that that same kind of uh, mindset and environment where it's, you know, it's not a cliche, it's reality. So would you say all the odds were stacked actually against you? I mean, some could say that. I think it's all relative. It's all from, you know, whosever vantage point is looking. I think that we all have odds stacked against us, you know, but it's up to you to take advantage of those opportunities or turn those negatives into positives and make the best of them. I hate, you know, I I never want anyone to, you know, pity me or feel bad for my upbringing or where I come from. So I wouldn't, yes, some people could say I had, you know, odds stacked against me, but I don't look at it that way. I look at it as I had an opportunity and I learned early on that, you know, I can either go left or right. You know, I I can either, you know, take the path that many of the kids in my neighborhood took, or I can create my own path. How did you learn that without having a father figure in your life? Was there a father figure that told you that, hey, this is right and wrong or go down this right path? Or was it your mother or who was that influential voice (laughs) inside your head that made you not seek revenge out for people that you and your family wrong? I think it was a, a combination of a few things. I would say one was fear. I didn't want to die. So, um, so, so my, my first brother was murdered over drugs and money. And then my second brother was murdered because he tried to avenge my first brother's death. So he went after. So you the, saw that. Oh, I was there. He went after the guys who killed my first brother because, you know, in Baltimore, it's, you know, it's, it's sad because those guys shouldn't have been on the street, but in no blame to, you know, police officers. I think that at the end of the day, it's up to the community to police itself. And, you know, in my neighborhood, people don't tell, you know, you know, snitches get stitches. stitches. Yeah. yeah. That's like, it's sad, but that's, that's the norm. That's commonplace in, in, in Baltimore and, in, and specifically in my community. In a lot of urban communities in general. Underprivileged communities. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's it uh, the code of the street. Yeah. You know, it's sad. So my first brother was murdered. My second brother avenged my first brother's death. And going back to your original question, what was that? Who was that person, or what was that thing that you know kind of pushed me down a different path? And I said, you know, one of the first things was fear. I didn't want to die. You know, I could have easily went after these guys and avenge my brother's death, and Both you know, tried to. Because the guys who did the who committed the crimes, they're still, you know, roaming the streets, you know, but fear. I didn't want to die. So I had to, you know, change my mindset. You know, uh, I had to do things differently, move in different ways. I think that was the first thing was fear. The second thing was money. You know, money was the motivator for me. I, I saw with with some of my friends from you know, the private high school I went to. You know, the amount of money that they had, the kind of cars they drove, the clothes that they wore. And it was, you know, I always believed if I can see it, then I can be it. If I can touch it, then I can become it. And I was going to a private school with some of, you know, the the wealthiest kids in, you know, in in, in Maryland and and not not only Maryland and, you know, in the world or in in the United States. Um, And that was, you know, another theme in my life that kind of, you know, pivoted my my. Kind of, kind of, yeah. Changed my direction and where I wanted to, wanted to be in life. So I think fear was was one thing that uh, played a major role. I think money was definitely a motivator and kind of made me want more out of my life and out of myself. And then just exposure to different people. Yeah, talk about coming from I'm going to say the hood in Baltimore, yeah, sure. going to a prestigious, mostly white high school yeah. where there were mostly privileged white kids. Sure. How was that transition? Did you resent it or did you look at it as, hey, I fit in because I'm a person just like them? What was your experience like? Yeah, no, it was a culture shock. And Instantly? It, it, oh, yeah. So it was a predominantly white school. In my graduating class, I was one of 
uh, two black. Well, what, you were rapping. And they were singing country music, or like what was it? <laughs> yeah, the yeah. Kumbaya. Yeah, it like- was. It was. Uh, it was different. You know, it was something that I've never experienced before. Mostly because in in a city, there were no white people. None. Literally none. None. No none. Eminem wannabes. No, there was no white people. I think in my like in my middle school. You know, I think we probably had two white kids and I and they were Russian. <laughs> I didn't know, <laughs> I didn't know these guys, American. you know, and I was fortunate enough to get a basketball scholarship to go to this private high school. You know, at the school, it was a culture shock. It was predominantly white. Um, I stuck I stood out like a, a sore thumb, you know, and there were some African-Americans there, but. The African Americans that were there, they all grew up in that same environment. So I was, I felt the first real black person, like from the inner city, that was exposed to this different culture. How did the kids in the school accept you? Did they take you on right away instantly? Or was it kind of like, stay away from him, he's bad news because he's not from where we're from? Yeah, no, I think it was uh, a mixture, you know, depending on who the person was. Funny enough, one of my, my good friends, his name is Craig Andrew Jeske, his mother wa- worked in admissions. So she was one of the people that saw me come in and had to, you know, get me situated in my classes. And you met him there schedule. at school. And he was a star lacrosse player. He oh. played lacrosse at, um, at UPenn. He was all, he's an all-American, you know, lacrosse player. And not only was he good in college, but he was one of the best in high school. So he was a stud and his mother made him be my friend. <laughs> and I don't know if he wanted to be my friend or not, but he accepted me in. Um, and because he was so popular, people looked up to him. If he's doing it, he's cool. Then you, you must be all right. Right. So then a lot of people, some people begin to accept me in. And then, you know, I was a, I was a decent athlete, played football, basketball, and lacrosse. And I, uh, I stood out. I, I did really well you know, for, for the teams I played for. I was one of the first freshmen to ever play on a varsity team. For basketball and football? For basketball. Football, I actually didn't play football. I want to say it was my junior year I played football. Just naturally good at it. I didn't play football until my junior year. Coincidentally, I ended up getting a scholarship to play football in college, but basketball was my sport. But because I was a good athlete, people would, they gave me a chance. I think sports was, sports is is a um, a platform that opens, it transcends cultures, g- generations, religion, you know, ethnicity. I think sports, anyway, for me, it was the thing that opened up doors. Is it more of a community factor, or is it more they wanted to be around the best athletes, so they're cool, you know? Yeah, I think it was. I think it was that. I think they they wanted to be associated with. They want to be something they're not. The best athletes, but but to their, you know, to play devil's advocate, basketball was not the. The fame, fame right. sport yeah. there, lacrosse right. was the sport. And then football. Uh, well, lacrosse. Baseball. Baseball was big as well, but lacrosse was was a sport. I think we were national champions in like 2000. And yeah, back then, most black people didn't play lacrosse, right? Yeah. <laughs> in high school, right? Yeah, well, I, I, I knew nothing about yeah. lacrosse. I didn't know it was a sport until I got to this yeah, private you're, you're high one school. You're those freak athletes, so you just go tell you to do it, and you do it. <laughs> yeah. you're, like, you're good at it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I remember one of the... Uh, the first games I uh, I played in, it was against Gilman, which is another private high school in, in Baltimore. The coach said to me for a whole week, he said to me, all right, we're going to we're going to practice getting you the ball and you running down the field. <laughs> so for a week, he would tell me to go near the goalie. The goalie would put the ball in my stick and I would take off running down the sideline because I was the fastest person out there long shot on the field. Sure, yeah. So uh, I would take off running down the sideline. And we would do that. We did that. We practiced that for a week. Every day, every day we practiced it, you know, 10, 15 times. Friday came and it was the game. It was a JV game against Gilman. The coach said, all right, Jason, it's time for you to go in. Let's do the play we practiced. And I went to the goalie. He put the ball in my stick and I took off running. And just like in practice, nobody could catch me. <laughs> I flew past the defense, uh, the offense. I flew past the defensive players. I flew past everybody. It was uh, it was it was just like we so drew it was up. Just you and the goalie. Just me and the goalie. And the goalie had no idea what to do because usually he has, you know, people defenders. that are defenders yeah. that are helping yeah. him. I get in front of the goal and then I think, oh my gosh, the entire week we were practicing me running down the field. Don't know how to shoot. <laughs> we never Wrong practiced. type of shooting. <laughs> we never practiced shooting the ball. Yeah. So I get in front of the goalie and I'm like, 
what am I going to do? Oh, and I just like shuffled the ball <laughs> out of my stick and it like bounced it in front of out. me. Yeah. <laughs> and then I got checked by one of the, the defend, defenders. They finally caught up with me. And, uh, and that was the highlight of my lacrosse career. You didn't score. <laughs> didn't score. Didn't score. Besides that, I'll tell one more story. And this is, uh, you know, it may sound not ignorant. It may sound not racist, but we had uh, something called the Soul Patrol. So one of the coaches for the lacrosse team, the varsity lacrosse team, he thought it would be cool. And this is my favorite teacher. He's still, I'm still great. You know, I'm close to him. And he's one of my, I would call him a mentor. He was a head lacrosse coach and he wanted to have three black players on the field at one time because that's never been done. That's pretty cool, actually. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. so in, in, in high school, yeah. and this is a varsity team, and we won a championship that year. I didn't you know, like, do anything yeah. to win, but for the varsity championship game, he had me, a guy named Christian Turner, and a guy named Quentin Gill on the field at the same time playing in like defense and he called us the soul patrol because you're taking people's souls no because like the soul brothers (laughs) (laughs) so so, uh that uh those are the two stories that i remember from you know playing lacrosse at this you know uh prestigious private high school now talk about so we obviously met at fordham right we became friends almost instantly day one yeah i wound up getting hurt in early training camp, you wound up getting hurt at the end of training camp yep. in August, and we spent really the next three to four months every single day together watching yep. The Wire. Walk me through the day we first met all the way through up until the day we had to both do conditioning in the pool to rehab our injuries, <laughs> yes. which I know you remember because we were both nauseous and throwing up. Yeah, so funny enough, so I, as you know, I came in with new coaches. So I came in mid-semester with a set of all new coaches to the Fordham's uh, football team. So when I came in, I felt that everyone on the football team hated me. Because you were their first recruit. Because I was the first recruit that they brought in. It wasn't that I was just thinking that. People did not like me because they thought I was was an outsider. I came in mid-semester, so I knew no one. I came in by myself. I came in under these coaches, so I was like the coach's pet. I had no one to lean on or talk to or to confide in. I just wanted, I wanted to be a part of the team. But, you know, some of the wide receivers felt that I was stealing their position and yeah, I was going to automatically get the, the spot because I'm coming in with these new coaches, not because I was better at the position. Which both were true. <laughs> <laughs> but funny enough, out of all the people that were wide receivers, and I think all the people that, you know, I originally was introduced to or met, you were the first person that said to me, and I, I think this is what you said, uh, not verbatim, but I don't care who you are, or where you come from. I'm going to compete for this position and I'm going to beat you out for this position. And then we could be friends off the field. All that was true, except I definitely didn't beat you out for that position. <laughs> but, you know, I, I respected and appreciated that so much because it's I mean, as you know, it's I mean, if you can just think about it as an adult now, looking back. Being new to a school, to a team, you know, to a job, everything is just like it's important to have someone that you can rely on or talk to or, you know, just be connected to versus being by yourself. It's important, you know, and now bullying has become a, you know, a bigger topic. But I felt like, you know, I was being bullied back then by people just not associating with me based off of the time I came to the school or who I came into the school with, meaning the coaches. So you were the, the first person that just accepted me for who I was, not because, you know, of, of my, you know, of athletics. It was like, you know, I don't care what you do, who you are. I'm going to beat you for the position and we can still be friends. And I'm like, that's all, that's all I asked for. <laughs> that's great by me. So now we go into training camp. I go down with an injury. A week or two later, you go down with an injury where you actually needed surgery. Yeah, yeah. So I um, I had something called compartment syndrome where they had to take two-thirds of the muscle out of my leg. And this is, this is kind of an interesting story because I feel like coming from Baltimore, it kind of relates back to you know my upbringing. I'm at my best when people tell me what I can't do. I work the hardest when people tell me that I can't achieve certain things. And I feel like I'm as qualified as any other person on this planet 
to do whatever roles in front of me, no matter whether, whether it's on the football field or in the classroom or in the job or in your career. I feel like I don't care who you are. You bleed just like me. And I'm, I, I know that I may not be the smartest person, but I will outwork anybody that is um, on the other side of the line. But I say that because when I had my surgery, it was an emergency rush surgery. The doctor told me I would never be able to play football again. Besides that, I may not be able to walk correctly again. Like I said, they had to take two thirds of the muscle out of my leg and I had to regrow my muscle. They say black people have extra muscles in their leg. Is that true? <laughs> that was probably <laughs> the muscle. They took. <laughs> yeah, two extra ones. <laughs> so uh, not only did I come back and play, you know, walk correctly again, but I ended up being the captain of the football team. I ended up, you know, being an All-American football player. I ended up breaking, you know, a number of records at, at Fordham. And I say that a lot of that had to do with this doctor telling me what I couldn't do. It's over. There's no one in this world that can tell me what I can't do. And when you do tell me that, I mean, I think, Watch out. yeah, I think my, I think, uh, Catherine, my wife is, uh, is smart because she <laughs> learned, she's smart. Yeah. She's she, only an attorney. Yeah. She, she's law grad. she learned, you know, how to push me and you push me by, you know, telling you can't do something. Telling me I can't do something. That's it's as simple as that. Now. Yeah, and so we were both injured at the same time. Yeah. I feel like you and I, we really developed you know, a lifelong bond over that next three months where sure. you basically moved in with me. Like you still yeah. stay on campus because technically you were still a freshman. Yeah. Yeah. And we, uh, I believe, stayed in the house for about three months straight <laughs> and watched The Wire. Yeah. Right? Yeah. A tribute, obviously, everything happens for a reason, but that was kind of like our not only get to know each other phase, but develop really the foundation to what we've been able to build on. Obviously, we would have still been friends. Do you think if we didn't have that time together and both experience hardship together and be there for one another when no one else is really experiencing that, do you think we would have been as close as we were today, organically? I think going through something makes you a stronger person. But going through something with someone else, it makes you both stronger and t- it makes you stronger together. Catherine just had a, um, she had to pull an all-nighter. First time she ever... We've done some all-nighters. Oh, yeah. So many <laughs> stories she says to me. This is the first time I've ever had to buy a toothbrush and brush my teeth in the office. And I'm like, well, I had to do that before, but I think it was <laughs> because... in the office. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I think it was because I stayed out and partied all night <laughs> uh, versus she working. She definitely didn't laugh No, no, that. no. So, so she, she worked all night. The partner of the law firm told her that they needed to stay and close this deal and she called me and was like, you know, I don't know what to do. You know, I'm so frustrated. I don't want to stay here all night. And I said, listen, this is an opportunity for you Pull to, <laughs> to, to build a relationship, not only with the associates that work with you, but also with the partner. You're going to be in an office all night with the partner going through the trenches. Yep, and together. this is going to make you strong, but this is going to make you guys, you know, your relationship stronger. Yeah, it's winning. And then like 10 years from now, you're going to be talking about, hey, you remember that night when we pulled an all-nighter? So, so to go back to your question, I think that, yes, I think we would have you know, been friends. But by going through something together, somehow I think that builds a stronger bond or stronger connection. So Now, we were, funny enough, I think we picked up alcohol one night and we were driving back to the football house. We were in my souped-up envoy Black tinted windows, system was pumping. Probably had like a bartender or a Lil Wayne, yeah. you know, rocking. Okay. The car was shaking. Okay. And we're at a red light, stopped. No one's around us. And then before we know it, there's like five or six cop cars, NYPD vans, sirens on, lights flashing. We're just sitting there, like literally rapping Lil Wayne, sure. like whatever it was. And then two seconds later, we're at like assault rifle gunpoint from like 10 different cops. Yeah. Walk me through what the heck happened and what transpired. That's, um, you know, that's a, a, that's a topic of its own. Mind that's, you, black tinted windows where you can't see in any part of the car. I think that that is, you know, a bigger issue that we have in the world today. You know, that's something that it seems like it shouldn't be happening, but it's still happening, you know, to this day. So I'll, I'll back up and, and tell a story. So I think we were going to go on campus. We lived a, a block away from campus or two blocks away from campus. And we got in your car and it was, I think it was cold out that yeah, night because we had sweat clothes on. Yeah. So we, we drove your car. We were driving your car to get to campus. You were driving. I was in a passenger pick seat. Pick up a girlfriend. Maybe pick up a girl. <laughs> And we made a, a right onto Fordham Road, yep. going toward the Bronx Zoo. We got about halfway up this kind of ramp 
near a bridge and there was a cop car, a cop van that went through the underpath while we were going above it. And they threw their car in reverse. And then they came up to where we were and pulled through their lights on behind us. And I think we were, you know, at a red light already. About maybe five or six police officers got out of this van and walked up to the back of the car, opened your trunk. Tried opening it. Oh, tried opening the trunk. And then one of the police officers came around to your window. And if I remember this correctly, he said... At gunpoint. They were all gunpoint. Yeah, they had the guns drawn. He said, are you okay? Yeah. After I rolled the window down. Yeah. And then he came to my side. Another one came to my side of the window and asked me for my license. Your ID. Yeah. I'm not driving. Yeah. <laughs> what do you want my license <laughs> yeah. for? I remember. And this is just, you know, a testament of, you know, the person that you are and, you know, why I think we've been friends so long because... I think with you, it's black and white. You know, it's right or wrong. You know, it's like, is this right or is this wrong? My judgment's been clouded a few times. Uh, Put a drink or seven in. No, but you you know what? You're a principled kind of person, you know, and and you have strong morals. And that night it was completely wrong. But I remember you saying, that night the police were wrong. I remember you saying, hey, I I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was like, let's not turn this into another crash I said, hey, fuck face. <laughs> let's, let's not turn this into another Crash movie or incident. Um, because Crash was the movie where, I, I believe, like a police officer ended up the guy's shooting wife or somebody. Like that, right? or, yeah, or something like that. That was inappropriate from yep. you know their perspective. Granted, I understand that you know police officers have a tough job and they go through a lot of Bad stuff doubt. on a daily Bad basis. Doubt. But that was bad. Well, if you remember the principle of it, so... They pulled up. They came over. They're like, sir, are you all right? I go, what the fuck do you mean if I'm right? I go, did I tell you that I wasn't all right? Yeah. And then they came over to you, asked you for your ID. And I'm like, and meanwhile, you had a Fordham shirt on, yeah. right? Yeah. And they were, I'm like, why the fuck are you coming at us? What the fuck's going on? And they were like, oh, well, your passenger looked like somebody right. who had previously robbed a woman's purse by the Metro North. I go, really? That's interesting. I go, again, I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed. Yeah. My windows are illegally tinted, 5% tint. Yeah. And he's pretty black. So even if you could see in, you couldn't see the face. So what the fuck are you doing? And again, listen, you know, the cops were very standoffish in the sense that they knew that they were wrong. They knew they were stupid. They could have probably arrested both of us just because I was being a prick to them. But they were 100% wrong. But truthfully, when you could have handled it differently... You yeah. didn't. You did the right thing. You shut your mouth. Yeah. You know, did you learn that or is that just no, how you are overall? No, it's just, it's, you know, first of all, it was embarrassing, you know, because I think we were still building on our relationship. Yeah, 2007. And I didn't want you to have to go through what a lot of black people go through on a daily basis I in the inner city. Actually. Right. I didn't want you to have to go through it. And then on top of that, if you would have felt like, wow, if this happens, Every time or often when I'm out with a black person or if I'm out with Jason, can't hang out with him. <laughs> I can't hang out with him, you know? So I was, you know, nervous from that standpoint. But then to further the story, they pulled us, they pulled me out of the car. I um, jumped out. <laughs> they, they had me put my hands up on, on your car and they searched me. I can remember it, you know, like it was yesterday. There was one black police officer out of that six. And I looked over at him while I was being searched. And he looked at me and the look in his face said, I'm sorry that this is happening to you. He without went, even saying he, it. Without saying anything. But, but he had no authority. He had no power. But he knew that what these other cops were doing wrong, was wrong. wrong. So going back to how did I make it out of Baltimore? I think fear. I was afraid that one of these police officers could make a mistake, you know, and shoot me. Or, you know, uh, think plant that I'm someone that plant something on me, think that I'm someone that I'm not and somehow arrest okay, me. Locked up for four days. So fear was one of the one of the, the things that stood out to me. And my grandfather always says to me, I don't know why he says this, but he says to me, remember, Jason, you're not white. <laughs> because, I, you know, I went to a predominantly white yeah, high school. Yeah, yeah. I went to a predominantly white college. I associate and I have a lot of friends who are white. My best friend's white, a white guy. So. My grandfather always says, remember, you're not white. You know, you still have to 
act accordingly when in certain situations. So I think fear and I should not I'm not I shouldn't be afraid. I shouldn't have to feel this way. But fear was one of the, you know, those motivators at that time where it was just like, I'm afraid that I may die. So let me just just stand here. Let my rights be violated and it'll be over as soon now, as possible. When you think of fear, mo- I've never heard anybody say fear has actually been the catalyst to my success, right? Yeah. First time I'm ever hearing that still to this day. Mostly people are held back by fear. But in this sense, it sounds like in two instances now, fear has been really your catapult, yeah. right? Yeah. To get you to the next progression. Yeah. And it's, you know, I've never said that to anybody because, you know, I'm a, I'm a man, you know, I'm a, I'm like a strong Machismo, black man, right? you know, that's what yeah, Catherine said. You don't want to tell people that you're afraid. And I've never told anybody that that was. You just told hopefully of, two million listeners. <laughs> yeah. But, but, it, but that's honest. You yeah. know, that's true. Fear was, I, I said this earlier, when my back's against the wall, that's when I'm at my best. When I'm, my back's against the wall, it's fight or flight. And fear is the thing that saves me. It's like, all right. I'm going to die in this. I can die, I can possibly die in this scenario. What can I do to get me out of this? What can I do to move forward? What can I do to be safe or, you know, to be in a better place? You know, I guess, yeah, fear has been a motivator and fear has been one of the things that, you know, has saved my life in a lot of instances. And that's sad to say, but, uh, you know, I, I wish it was, I wish it was something else that was more sh- cool. But yeah, I think fear to be, you know, at the core, honest, you know, fear is a thing that has saved me. For those of you that don't know, Jason um, ran a 4340. 439. Still 4'3". No one counts after that. Jumped 44 inches. 44 and a half inch vertical. But now we're going, now we're counting the half. (laughs) 0.5. Okay. And turned down the NFL and the opportunity to be drafted to the NFL in order to pursue the ugly game of Wall Street. Ugly to some, but... Walk us through that. Yeah, so um, so I was a decent athlete, thanks to the doctor who... Um, Told I, you I, no. <laughs> I don't want to say it was Dr. Zambetti. Might have been. Dr. Z. Uh, I actually it's probably had, Vinny, but he's known for misdiagnosing. <laughs> oh, no. Vinny's a, a, a good guy, a good golfer. Ever too. had a shirt for a long time? I used to wear a shirt. <laughs> I love my athletic trainer. I have a shirt that says that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so I think... So I was a decent athlete. You know, like I said, I was a you know all American. I broke a lot of records. Like decent, he means freak athlete. I broke a, a, a good amount of records at Fordham, and had the opportunity to pursue the NFL. So my 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 senior year, our quarterback John Skelton got drafted to the Arizona Cardinals. I remember I got interviewed. I don't know if it was like the New York Times or if it was. You know, the Rambler, the Ram Times, Fordham, Fordham newspaper. It was yeah. a newspaper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they interviewed me and they said, Jason this is my senior year after I was an All-American, you know, my um, the previous year, my fifth year. They said, Jason, now that you are about to graduate and your, your quarterback, you know, that you played with for four years is in the NFL, are you thinking about playing in the NFL? And I remember saying this. And my mom has this article hung up in in like the living room in our in our place in our in her house. And in the interview, I said Wall Street is my NFL. And I said that I thought I was clever. I thought somebody will probably read this down yeah, the road, yeah, give me yeah. a job. That didn't happen. The reason that I chose Wall Street is because ever since I grew up in Baltimore, since I was a kid in Baltimore, the reason I made it out is because I did the opposite of what everybody else was doing. So the kids in Baltimore were selling drugs. At some point in my life, I, you know, did sold, some things sold I drugs should, before? Did some things I yeah. should have did, yeah. The kids in my neighborhood sold drugs. And because they sold drugs, you know, they, they sold drugs their entire life. I've never seen a drug dealer become successful, you know. Yeah, I've seen dealer. a drug dealer. Yeah, they're always drug dealers. So I was like, I don't want to do that. You know, if they continue to be drug dealers and, you know, they either stayed drug dealers or they ended up in jail or they ended up, you know, in prison. Yeah, so I was like, you know, I don't want to go that route. Um, so I did the opposite of what all my friends were doing. And then the last thing was, if it wasn't drugs, the other thing that people, minorities, black kids in inner city, you know, think they can do or hope to strive to do is play in the NFL or the NBA. The chances of making it in the NFL or the NBA are slim to none. But everybody believes that they're going to make it. And I don't say that to knock anybody's dreams. If you think you can make it, 
you know, go after it, give it a hundred percent, you know, give it your all. But the chances of you making it are very slim. So I weigh odds. I say, you know, the chances of me making it in the NFL now, now that I'm in college, the chances of me making it in the NFL have gotten a lot better. But the chances of me surviving in the NFL, the average NFL career is a two and a half years. The chances of me surviving in the NFL are very slim. So why not own an NFL team versus playing for an NFL team? You know, why not, you know, manage money for an, for, uh, an NFL player versus spending money as an NFL player? I think I had the foresight to see that the odds of me making it on Wall Street were a lot greater than one making it in an NFL and staying in an NFL for a long career. The people that I know, I mean, I know a ton of people who, you know, a handful of people who coach NFL teams, a ton of people who play in the NFL now. But I think long term, I made the best decision because, you know, I'm I have a career. I don't have to worry about injuries. I don't have to worry about, you know, getting hurt playing, you know, football or, you know, if I'll get cut this year or competing against a 22 year old or a 23 year old who's just coming out of college. I have a career where I don't want to say comfortable, but I have created a path or created a, um, an opportunity for myself to be successful for the rest of my life versus, you know, in the NFL, it's in my mind, it stand, stands for not for long. So after you got out of school and you turned down the NFL, it told them to go beat it. Yeah. What did you do? So uh, besides uh, fear, besides money, I think the other attribute that I have is my relationships. I'm really good at building genuine relationships, not fake or because I want to get something out of it in return. But I I feel like I do a really good job at building relationships and then cultivating those relationships. Because I was a, you know, a good athlete and I was a captain of the team at Fordham, there were a lot of people who were, you know, wanted a piece of me. They wanted to, you know, me to be in their circles. They wanted to take me out to, to dinners or they wanted to be in my likeness or my presence. So with, you know, going to different galas or going to different, you know, events with alumni, I begin to build relationships with those guys. And I think that that helped me out, especially now. The first job I've got that I got out of, out of college uh, was through a football player's father. He was like second in command in MetLife. His name was Mike Farrell. And uh, Sean Farrell played football, you know, uh, with us and his father every year would bring one or two kids from Fordham um, and give them an opportunity to work at MetLife. So I worked on a variable annuity desk there for about two years. Really, it wasn't Wall Street like I thought it would be. It was insurance, but it was, um, it was a good segue and a good introduction to finance and to the business world. The real world. The real world. Oddly enough, like I said, my relationships is my biggest attribute. Every job that I've gotten since I've graduated college has been through a Fordham alum. Wow, that's powerful. I've had four different jobs. I worked at MetLife for two years. I worked at a firm called HRC for about two years. I worked at Lazard Asset Management for about four years and now Goldman Sachs. And every job that I've gotten has been through a Fordham alum. I know in your corporate professional world, you're very patient. In your personal competitive nature of who you are, you know, I know you always say all the time, like you looked up to Michael Jordan growing up, right? Like that was kind of like the guy you looked up to from an athletic standpoint, mentality standpoint. How do you balance being ultra patient and waiting for your time versus going out there by nature and just taking what you want and competing? I think being busy. So I, I would say for athletes, you should, you should definitely, if you want to play in the NFL, and I, and I, I just changed this because I would always say you should never put all your eggs into one basket. That's what I used to say. Now I say, if you want something. you're old now. Yeah, now I'm a little, little, little wiser, but I would say you put all your eggs in that one basket. It's okay to fail. You know, give it 100%. Because if you're not giving it 100%. Someone else is. Someone, someone else is. And if you're giving it 99%, that 1% that you're not giving, it could push you over it's the edge. Factor. So I say you give it a, give it 100%, right? And that's the same thing in the business world. I try to stay as busy as possible. So if one, in, in my industry, the sales process, it usually takes about a year to bring in one account. Typically takes about a year. 
So it's a long process of, you know, whining and dining and ball games. going to baseball games and basketball games and, you know, building a genuine relationship. It takes a long time for someone to trust you with their money. But while you're working with that person, I, I say you you continue to work on your craft with other people. So I'm continuously, you know, going out, trying to find business from as many people as possible, which keeps me busy it keeps me on a treadmill running 100%, but I'm just doing it in a different way. I'm doing it in a lot. I'm spending 100% on a lot of people versus 100% on one person where I have to wait. By keeping busy, I'm not, I'm come constantly on a move and I'm not, it's not, it's not about waiting. What was it like the day you realized that you had a legitimate career opportunity at Goldman Sachs? Because I feel like, and knowing where you came from to, achieving that level of success, right? Yeah. And you definitely put all the work in in between. There was no like rock left unturned. What was the feeling inside of you? Like I made it or I have so much more to accomplish? Yeah, you know, that's a really, really good question. So every time I've accomplished something, I feel like there's something more out there. So you check off that box. I, w- I wouldn't even say I check off the box. I would just say Goldman Sachs is the, the... Can't go higher. You can't go higher than that, right? But once you get there, it's like, if I got here, then I I got more. I could do more, especially at my age. I'm only 33. I feel like I I feel like there is something out there. I don't know what that is. Maybe vice president of the United States. <laughs> president. <laughs> yeah, president. I don't want to be president. You be president. I'll too, be vice president. Too much responsibility. <laughs> but but I feel like it was. Yes, I made it. I made it here. This is the, the cream of the crop. This is where everyone wants to be. This is 200 West Street. This is you know Wall Street's finest. Yeah, this is it. But once I got here, it was like. If I can do this, then that means I have a lot more to offer. So I never get complacent with where I am. I always feel like there's something better out there and it's I need to find it. So so the day I got my job at Goldman, I don't know if I should say this, but the day I got my job at Goldman, it's like, all right, I made it here. What else is out there? You know, there has to be something bigger than this. Because if they let me in here, then I feel like I didn't deserve to be here. But once I got here, it's you like fit right in. We're so better than that. I'm better than this, you know. So it's I continue to push. It's uh, it's it's never. I don't get complacent. I feel like once you get complacent and once you feel like you've made it, that's when you lose. I think it's two twofold. One, once you get complacent and feel like you made it, that's when you you fail. And once you get greedy and you want more and you you start to bend corners in order to achieve greatness, that's when you fail. I like to play around in the middle. That middle uh, buffer. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I like to stay in the middle where. You know, I like to push. I'm, I'm not. I'm not content. content. But not satisfied. Uh, yeah, I'm or not satisfied. But content. Yeah, exactly. I'm happy where I am, but I feel like if I'm not if I'm not pushing for something greater, then I'm not growing, and that's the only way you can grow by you know continuing to strive for you know more. What's your advice to kids that grew up like the way you grew up? Single mom, single parent household, bad influences, negative influences, yeah. toxic, dangerous influences all around them. You know. I believe that every kid is born great yeah. and life circumstances and experience and specifically environments, you know, cause them to either look to take the easy way out or become accustomed to what they know and are exposed to. What's your advice for that kid that, you know, two brothers are in jail, for example, mother may be doing illegal work, whether it's selling drugs or, you know, unfortunately prostitution, something like that, where there's not a good home life. What's your advice to that kid? to make his way out and follow in your footsteps and not follow down one of those three paths to the cemetery, to drug dealing yeah. or uh, I, I, would, I would say uh, you should never let someone else's success dictate your future. Regardless um, of the industry? or Regardless. So, so coming up, and I didn't say this, you know, um, my uncle, I thought, was the richest man in the world. And I tell this story when I go back to Baltimore because my uncle had wads of cash. You know, he, he always dressed like the young guys, you know, he had two Lexuses. He had the, one of the first cars where you press a button and it parks itself. I thought my uncle was the richest man in the world. So I modeled myself to be just like him. Now, looking back at that, if I would have let his success dictate my future, then I would be a drug dealer in Baltimore, you know? So I would encourage people to never let someone else's success dictate their future. There's always bigger, there's always better, there's always something greater out there, and you should be curious. You should seek out those opportunities, and you should never be afraid to fail. If in my mind, failure 
is not the end. Failure is a stepping stone to success. Failure is just one way of not doing things or one way that things don't work. You know, there's a million, you know, opportunities out there in, you know, 900, you know, 99, you know, percent of them may not work, but there is one way that will work. You got to continue to strive for greatness. You got to continue to knock down, knock on doors. You got to continue to, you know, try to be the best you can be. And eventually there will be an opportunity. It will be a crack. You know, there will be, you know, uh, uh, something that is, is sparks a flame in you. But I will say that you have to be prepared. You know, you have to be prepared for it because when that opportunity comes and it really does come, but when it comes, if you're not ready for it, then you'll never be successful. You just wasted, you know, a ton of time. So I say preparation is important, you know, being prepared, being ready for that opportunity and just knocking on doors because when that opportunity presents itself, you got to be ready to capitalize on it. In the show The Wire, they say keep them in the hole, down in the hole, right? Yeah. Basically, they keep you into what you know, yeah. you know, change is uncomfortable for people. Yeah. What's your advice to that really smart kid or that star athlete that, you know, keeps, he's running full speed to get out of that life and he yeah. keeps trying to be tugged back in to yeah. keep him down in the hole? What's your advice for them to either disconnect or slowly remove themselves from those relationships that people aren't going anywhere yeah. that want to you know, be those anchors. What, what's the easiest way of doing it while still maintaining some type of you know, respectful consideration yeah. for the other person? Yeah, so, so, so I'm from Baltimore, and Baltimore, Maryland, uh, is the home of the crab. That's our, that's our, like, what it's called. But the that's mascot. A, that's our mascot. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but it's, it's another word you call it, but that's our mascot, the crab, the Maryland blue crab. When we talk about Maryland, we refer to it as as the people in Baltimore as crabs in a bucket, because every time one of the crabs gets to the top of the bucket and finally is about to get out, another crab pulls, pulls them down. back down. So that's kind of the analogy. Yeah. Keep them in a hole, yeah. down yeah, yeah. in a hole. That's and, where it came from? Well, I don't know if that's where it came from. Sounds good. I yeah, like so they came from a song, but that's the analogy, you know, in a different perspective. And, and that's how a lot of people feel. I was the first person in my family to go to college, in my immediate family to go to college. First person, first male in my family to get a master's degree. First person in my neighborhood to get out of Baltimore. I think that for that kid who is, you know, trying to get out, trying to make it in life, you know, don't know which way to turn or how to be successful. I would say taking a leap of faith, getting exposure. The thing that that changed my direction. One of the things that changed my direction was my senior project in high school. For my senior project, they gave us a week off from school in May and they told us we could do something that we've never done before. So a lot of my friends would play instruments. And then for that week, when you came back from that week off, you had to you know, share with the entire school what you did for that, that week. A lot of my friends played instruments. Some of my friends had, you know, professional athletes like Cal Ripken come in and speak on their behalf. You know, some of my friends went on vacation with their family to Hawaii or to Europe or, you know, somewhere out, outside of the U.S. And they came back and spoke about their experiences. My teacher, the same teacher that created the Soul Patrol, he came to me and he said, he was the, the lacrosse coach. He said, what are you going to do for your senior project? And I said, I have no idea. I don't have, you know, money to buy an instrument. You know, I don't know any celebrities that can speak on my behalf. And I've never been outside of Baltimore, let alone the country. So my teacher said, well, my, my son, he works in New York. He makes a lot of money. I don't know what he does, but maybe you can shadow him. He's for a drug week. dealer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. So I came, he was a dealer, but uh, he's a broker. I came to New York for that week. I shadowed his son, who was a managing director at Merrill Lynch. He worked in sales and trading. So he traded with different institutions but one of his counterparts on the Florida New York Stock Exchange, he allowed me to shadow him for two out of the five days I was here. These guys were just playing with money. And that was one of the determining factors to say, I want to be in New York. I want to work on Wall Street because these guys are playing with money like it's nothing. One of the guys, when I was on the Florida Exchange, he said, you know, Jason, tell me two stocks that you think are good to invest in. And at the time, I didn't even know what a stock was. So he said, tell me two companies. And, you know, I, I was like, you know, because I play basketball, I said Nike. And he like nodded his head. And I said, TiVo. You know, back then, TiVo, yeah, yeah, he could sure. record, yeah. rewind television shows. He turned his back to me and typed away on his computer. And I said, well, what did you just do? And he said, well, I put $100,000 into both of those stocks. 
And I could not believe it. You know, like at, at the time, I've never... Your whole body probably tensed up. Yeah, I never heard the word $100,000 before. That sound like... It's like a true white a person. Yeah, one hundred thousand dollars. I, I I was like, I what? A yeah. hundred? I'm a I'm hundred k. I'm a black kid from Baltimore. I don't make that decision based off me. That's a lot of money. And he just you know looked at me and nonchalantly told me to relax. He was like, Jason, it's ju- it's just money. And at that very moment, I knew I want to work on Wall Street. They're just playing with money. If I can see this guy, then I can be him. If I can touch him, then I can become him. If I can talk to him and ask him, how did he get to, you know, being a broker or a stockbroker at the Florida, New York Stock Exchange, then maybe I could become him as well. And now, you know, I'm doing business with some of those same guys that I did my internship with as a freshman and as a, a senior in high school. So to answer your question, it's a long way of, you know, coming back around to it. But for that kid who is trying to be successful, who wants, you know, uh, to get out, who wants the opportunity to 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 work on Wall Street or work at Goldman Sachs or, you know, to 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 go to a uh, college. I say, get out, get out of Baltimore, you know, get exposed, even if it's or wherever you're from, wherever you're from. Go to, you know, if you're in New York City, go to, kids to run away, go to the Statue of Liberty, run away, not run away, but go go explore different things that are out there. You know, um, you never know who you'll meet along the way. You never know what will open your eyes or, you know, what you'll get exposure to by traveling and, and, and experiencing different cultures and different people. Step out of your box, you know, try to experience different cultures, you know, try to find find something that's different that you're not used to. Get out of your comfort zone because that's when the real magic happens. You've been always somebody that had an open mind to everything. There are some times where I've said things like, no, no, absolutely not. And I know that like with a little bit of leaning on you, a little bit of pressure, we'll go into, okay, maybe we'll try it. Right? <laughs> you told me a story one time where you walked into a bar in the city early. You were meeting some friends there, right? And from you, I think they were your... Uh, business school friends, sure. right? I think you either had Trump hat on or Make America uh, Great hat on. Now, again, we don't talk about politics on here at all. Again, I say full disclosure, I don't care who our president is, black, white, purple. You know, I don't care what they've done in the past, good or bad, including Bill Clinton. And who was that? Who did Bill Clinton? Monica Lewinsky. God bless both of their souls. You got to do what you got to do sometimes, right? Yeah. Walk me through your experience with white people right? Yeah. when you had the head on at the bar and how they hated on you. Yeah. So, so, so let, let me back up not to get political, but there are a lot of things that I disagree with. So here's the thing. I disagree with our system. I disagree with the way the, the system set up. There is no one in this world that can honestly say that they believe 100% what Hillary Clinton believes or 100% what Donald Trump believes. Right. And I hate the fact that our system pits us against each other. Pick one or the other. You either have to be far right or far left. Hate one, love one. There is no in-between. That's why I think our system is flawed. And it needs to be a multi-party system where, you know, people aren't white. It's, it's, the, the system, the world people is not white and black. People are people. People have different opinions. I, like, Okay, so I say that to say there are some things that President Trump does and believes that I agree with. I like. There are some things that he does not know that he does that I, that I disagree That's with. every person that I know though, right? And you know. Yeah. So what I like to do is break down barriers. And um, controversy. I, yeah. You like, you like a, a good debate. I, I love to debate. <laughs> and monopoly. <laughs> love to debate. Because, and in, in, in this is how you stay informed. You, I, I have to be up to date with what's going on in the political realm, in the you know financial world, in you know the social world, but I will say that I am fiscally conservative and I am socially liberal. So when it comes to you know some of the things that Trump believes in from a social standpoint, I, I tend to disagree. When it comes to some of the things from a fiscal standpoint, I I feel like I strongly agree. Right. So fast forward to. The bar scene. So, so I went to Fordham. I went to business school. I got my MBA at Fordham. I graduated 2017. My, cl- I think Fordham's a liberal school. Yeah, it's a, definitely a liberal school. It's a Jesuit school, but I, they they definitely lean left. Me, I'm all about having a dialogue and a conversation. I love people. I love meeting people from different cultures, from different backgrounds, from different. This, I love. I love that because I'm constantly growing. You know, I'm constantly 
when I say I say you can't be content, and that's even with your with who you are. Like no one knows everything, and no one has an answer for every question except for Goldman Sachs. But I Marcus. feel <laughs> I feel that um, I'm constantly growing and evolving to become the person who I ultimately will be in the future. Um, so if you disagree with something that I believe in or something that I say, then prove me otherwise. If you can make a compelling argument to show me why I'm wrong, then maybe I can be yeah, swayed. It. It. That's fine. Like I'm, I'm constantly evolving. I think we are constantly evolving as, you know, a uh, society. So, um, I wore, I wore a make America great again hat. Was it red or white? It was a red. It was the red. It was the, it was the hat. Not only did I wear it in New York. You from Kanye? I, I wore it in Newark, New Jersey. Yeah. Coming from my, you know, my apartment in Newark, and I didn't understand how offensive it was. I thought it would be, I thought it would spark conversation more than anything else. And boy, Were was wrong? I wrong. <laughs> oh, yeah. Was, was it the first time? <laughs> so I think my wife threw the hat away. But so I went to, actually went to class that day, wore the hat in class, and half of the class is like, yeah, Jay, yeah. And the other half is like, what is going on? <laughs> <laughs> and I wore, I wore, I didn't care. I wore, I sat up, I sat in front of class yeah. or whatever. One of my friends pulled me aside after class and said, hey, I just want to make sure you're not serious about Donald Trump. And I'm sitting there thinking in my head, I'm like, Sir, you never, you haven't asked me, at me, you haven't asked me one question about Donald Trump. So how, what do you mean? Am I serious? Just wearing this hat. You don't know what my thoughts yeah, are. You don't know. Make America great again. Yeah, you don't, you don't know what my thoughts are on him or his policies or, you know, anything that has to do with politics. So I just like, oh yeah, no, yeah, no, I'm wearing a hat. <laughs> and he's like, oh, okay. I just wanted to make sure because. Was a white guy? No, I was a black guy. Okay. And he said, cause I thought, you know, I just wanted to make sure, you know, because that's very offensive to wear the hat. He was my classmate. I have to like. Be in class with him for another two years, so I was uh, I was like, nah, I'm not I'm not even going to go there with it, you know, just let it go. Well, anyway, business school, a lot was of he like a Steve Urkel type. He was he was like a Jesse Smollett. <laughs> <laughs> <Gotcha>. <laughs> yeah. So uh, after class, we go out and we have drinks. Didn't realize this, but and I should have known it. I, and the thing is, I was I don't know if I was wrong. I'm not going to go that far and say I was wrong, but we were in Hell's Kitchen. So in Hell's Kitchen, there are a lot of um, outspoken people. I wouldn't say outspoken. I would I would say more. It's correct to say gay people. Okay. Yeah. In 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 yeah. um in Hell's Kitchen, there's a lot of there's a strong gay community, yep. and I have gay friends. Yeah. And nothing we wrong both do. So so I go to uh, I go to this, this bar right down the street from Fordham at Lincoln Center. I'm sitting at the bar with this hat on, and I'm waiting for. I'm actually with three girls from my class, and across the bar there's like three white guys. One of the white guys just keeps staring at me, keeps shooting me, you know, looks. And I had no. He liked you. I've, I like forgot about that. He was that. hitting on you. I forgot about the hat. Like, I completely forgot that I had this hat on. And I'm just sitting there at the bar, just having a drink. And it's not like your hat says, like, kill whitey. <laughs> <laughs> and the guy kept looking over at me. Finally, he got the nerve to stand up and he came over to me in front of me and three other girls. And he said, You're racist. You're homophobic. You're prejudiced. And you don't belong here. Whoa. Like, hold like hold your horses. Like, dude, let's have a conversation. Like, why do you feel that way? One, I'm racist. I'm, I'm black. What do you mean I'm racist, dude? <laughs> but for me, I'm like, I wanted to have a conversation. Like, this could have been a great opportunity for us to have a conversation. And it could have been a great opportunity for him to change my mind. And vice versa. Right. Now, did you feel any instant, like, yo, I want to knock this guy out or no? No, because I felt like... He was offended and ignorant. Yeah, he was, it was ignorant for him to do that, but I felt like he was offended, and I respect. I respect. I felt bad. I felt bad. Like maybe because you're secure with yourself, though. Yeah, but I'm, I was like, maybe I shouldn't. Maybe I should have been more sensitive to others' feelings. And this hat represents something to some people. It means it's different for everybody, right? But I would have loved it if he would have, you know, sat down and had a conversation. Educational and professional. That's where. The disconnect is in this world today. Completely. People are not having the conversation like that is how you build bridges. And that's how you progress. That's how you progress by having the conversation. And the media doesn't help that the media purposely drives the wedge in between. And I'm sure at this point, 
those social media targeted ads to people based on what you, what you sure. search to drive more hate. Yeah, yeah, and and that's uh, that's that's sad. That's why I do love social media. I, I'm not love it, but I do use social media, and I like you know where we're going from from a uh, technology standpoint. But I rather sit and have a conversation with someone. I think that that's the most important thing. Having that open dialogue and just talking about your experiences in your life because no one, you don't know what, what I've been through. Everyone's different. Everyone's different. And you don't know what someone's going through on a daily basis. So I try to be respectful to all people, but I do love talking politics and I like to debate and I like to have deep, meaningful conversations. What do you do with the person that is so closed-minded in any topic? Obviously someone who's closed-minded Probably turn this episode off already. It's like, oh, oh yeah. whatever. Like, all right, keep it, keep it moving, pal. Yeah. But uh, how do you make somebody aware that they are closed-minded? You can't. Can you? You can't. Can't. I think uh, you I keep think, trying or no. Well, if they keep if they keep coming, yeah. you, you hey, I, come I, back I for more. So. Come back for seconds. Yeah. yeah if you if they keep yeah. coming, then I think just sharing, peeling back layers is is a thing, and just having an open dialogue. Like, there's a lot of things like. I have friends that I disagree with 90% and it's of it's okay to that, disagree. Yeah, that's it. That's fine. That is completely fine. And I don't, I don't not want to be their friends because I disagree with them. Right, right. I think that actually makes me a stronger person of course. by You're accepting differences. Exactly. You know what I feel like? I feel like now it comes down to like, listen, morals, values, and ethics. I get that to yeah. a certain extent. Right. Yeah. But at the end of the day, if you're being prejudiced towards someone's color, having a preconceived notion based on their color, yeah. It's the same thing for political beliefs and religious beliefs. Yeah. It's like, oh, wait, hold on. Oh, you practice Buddhism? I don't like you. Yeah. Oh, wait, you're wearing a Make America Great hat? I don't like you. Oh, you don't like Obama? I don't like you. Yeah. At the end of the day, like, we're all here together. As long as I never did something personally to you or, yeah. like, I'm not, like, child sex trafficking, sure. which is a hot topic right now, yeah. or, like, no one had sex with your wife, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. there are things that you can agree to disagree on. Yeah, I agree. But why do people make it so personal? It's like, oh, I can't associate with you. Oh, you, this is insulting. Oh, I'm offended by a choice of decision that you respectfully yeah. stand by. I think it's uh, I think it's a little bit about maturity. And Entitlement? I think maturity and I think insecurity. I think you have to be mature enough to understand both sides. Maturity, maturity yeah. You have to be mature enough to say, I disagree with you, but I accept what you have to say. You know, I, I disagree with it, but I, re- I respect your opinion, you know, and I think immaturity. I think a lot of people are <laughs> adults are immature, you know, and, and ignorant and ignorant. I don't think is a bad I don't, I don't I don't I'm not using it in a bad way. Like uneducated, though, but just not just not educated. Just don't know any better. My, my mother had a 401k and uh, she had all her money sitting in like some fixed income vehicle for you know, 15, 20 years. She would have made a killing. 15, yeah. 20 years. She was ignorant. or She just was not educated on how to be invested yep. to make money yep. long term. If you don't know what you don't know. I think, one, you can't change someone else, but you can try and you can just, you know, be a springboard to listen if they, you know, if they want to talk. And I'm, I'm, I'm an open book and I, and I like, I like to share my experiences and I like to help people get through theirs, you know, so, um. So I think just being open-minded is uh, is key to helping people progress. People that are closed-minded, you know. So, so every episode we close off with something for people to deposit that to their memory bank with. One thing that you want people to take away from your episode, from your advice, from your thirty-three years of life experience. What's one thing that you would like to see people implement into their daily life routine agenda? Well, I love to share what I do and how I can be helpful. And it's, this will be quick. I'll give you my like my little <laughs> three minute spill Short version. Yeah, of what I do. So, so, so I work at Goldman Sachs in the investment management division. I work on a team called the Partners Coverage Group. My team was actually you know created in 2000 when the firm went public by three guys. Two out of three are still there, and the team was created to manage money for the partners of the firm. So every time, you know, um, someone is made partner, we have a, a partner class every two years. One of the people on my team is tasked with managing assets for partners. So my team manages, I want to say about $22 billion in supervision and about, you know, I say $14 billion for the clients that we work with, you know, managing their assets and advising them on different investments to, to, to invest in. You know, my role and my job is to provide invite advice 
provide a springboard for people to, you know, reach their goals financially and to help them get there. The minimum investment account for the clients we work with is 10 million, but the average investment is about 60 million of investable assets. The one thing that I, I can say we do well is listening. You know, a lot of the relationships that we have are not me dictating where someone invests. It's more so a partnership where we both come together and we find out what's the best investment vehicle, what's the best investment opportunity, what's the best investment goals in order to achieve what you ultimately set out to to achieve when working with my team or an advisor at my firm. I'll stop there because I can ramble on about what I do. To listen? I think I think listening. I think listening is is important. I think I think that that's probably one of the most important attributes, um, especially if you want to be successful. Well, I think there's a lot of noise. A lot of people like to do the talking. They yeah. like to hear themselves talk. Oh uh, yeah, and I, I I'm look. I've, I've been accused of liking to hear myself talk too. And yeah, by your wife only. I <laughs> and I could talk forever, but um, yeah, listening is key because how can you be successful if you don't know? They say if you give someone enough time to talk, they're going to tell you all their secrets anyway. Oh yeah, yeah, no, I agree. I mean, it's and that's just like in my business. Uh, my role is, my job is to listen to to clients' needs, you know, and help them solve a problem. Um, so I think I, if I can say one word or sum up my time here, one, don't be afraid to fail. You know, fear is okay as long as you use it, in, you know, in the right way. Don't be afraid to take chances. Be curious. You know, be open minded and and listen. Well, as you know, it's always a pleasure. I'm sure you'll be back on the show another 20 times over the next yeah, 20 we'll years. We're running yeah. this 20-year run. Let's but do it. I appreciate all the insight you gave. Obviously, awesome. you've been an inspiration to me, everyone I know, uh, and hopefully everyone that listens to the show. So awesome. we'll have you back on here soon. Jason Caldwell, Goldman Sachs. <laughs>